Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Title of the message, our final message in 1 Thessalonians, A God of the Impossible. This morning I started the service by mentioning that um, I I get to do something a a little bit different today and and, uh, it's not that I chose to, it's just this is, this is the, the different emphasis of, of this particular portion of Scripture in that after many, many um, verses, many, many weeks, both in 1 Samuel and in 1 Thessalonians, of teaching on kind of, you might say, the do's and the don'ts and our obligation to the do's and the don'ts, today we got to take a step back and look at the God behind them and the graciousness and the goodness of our God and the joy that it is to be found uh, on the right side of, of God, we might say. And the thrust of this evening's message will be very similar. We preach the Bible here at Legacy Baptist Church and, and um, we need that. But thank God that the Bible isn't just a big book of do's and don'ts. It's a book about a relationship. As we walk through our days, putting true effort into doing what is right in the eyes of God, we need to remember that we can't do it. We can't do everything that God has asked us to do, but we take heart because that which is impossible with man is possible with God. We take heart because God does not ask us to do it. God asks us to submit ourselves to Him so that He can do it through us. Anything that I do that does in fact please God is done in faith. And anything done in faith is done in the power of God's Holy Spirit. So while it does indeed take a true exercise of personal determination in faith to please God, at the end of the day, it is only through God that we can ever hope to please God. And this way, and through this perspective, we find that even in the context of those things we do which do indeed please God, we could never do them without God's help. And this evening we're going to consider our perfection in Christ and the God that has made it so. And as we do so, it's my deepest prayer that this message will help afford us each a balance in our perspective on life and on ministry. That though your pastor deeply desires you to live a life that is pleasing to God, deeply desires you to do what is right according to the Word of God, I desire it for you, I desire it for myself, I desire it for my family. I'm not asking you, as I stand up here, to be sinlessly perfect. Though your pastor regularly compels you to take steps of faith and to exercise personal discipline in your walk with the Lord, I also understand that every step you take must be empowered by the God who lives within you. It's my prayer that this message will not be seen as making you feel any sort of license to sin, that sin is okay or anything of the sort, or that your sin is excusable, but at the same time, it will help each of us remember 
that we are sinners and that we are warring against the flesh and that though the battles can and ought to be won and God has made every provision for us to win every battle, the war will not be won in this life. The battles can be won, but the war rages until the day that God takes us home. And God promises that regardless of our disposition in this life, if we are one of His own, when we step into eternity, whether He comes and calls us or whether we go to Him, we will win the war. One day we will be perfect. One day we will be sinless. Isn't that a nice thought? What hope? So we start out this evening, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 23. Scriptures tell us, let's begin in verse 21 for context. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. We talked about those last week. And the very God, verse 23, of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Recall last time we were together, Paul exhorted us to try the spirits, to test the spirits, to prove all things and to hold fast to that which is good, to hold fast to that which is excellent and to abstain from that which is evil. He called it the appearance of evil. Not that if somebody perceives something might be evil, we shouldn't do it. Remember, we talked about that. But rather that if evil is found in something, that we pinpoint that and we abstain from it because evil is found there. Now, the exhortation, that last exhortation, is the end of a long list of exhortations unto personal sanctification, a list that began in chapter 3, that the believers in Thessalonica would persist in their determination to please the Lord through piety and through righteous living. And it is within this context, the context of sanctification, of pleasing the Lord, of living one's life in, w aligned with the expectations of God, with the will of God, with the Word of God, that Paul then gives them the hope that though we struggle in this life with sanctification, though we struggle in this life with obedience, there's coming a day when that struggle will be over when that victory will be won. And Paul begins by giving them a wish for the future, a wish that God would sanctify them wholly. Verse 23, he says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. It's common both in the Old and in the New Testaments that when one would express a wish or desire from God toward another, the writer would emphasize the particular attribute of God that would bring that desire to pass. Uh, as we consider the Old Testament and as a patriarch or as one of the, the great men of the faith would reference God, perhaps they would reference Him as God my banner or God my victory or God my rock 
They, they would use different attributes of God to emphasize what they needed or what they felt another needed in that time. And as Paul considers the process of sanctification in the life of the believer, the attribute that he emphasizes is what? Peace. The God of peace. In nearly every epistle, go through the Pauline epistles, in nearly every epistle, Paul begins by saying, Grace and peace be upon you. It was Paul's deepest desire before even telling a church uh, how much he missed them or what they needed to do or, or giving them any doctrinal direction before any of those things. He would first say grace and peace. That he, he desired that they would remember the blessed reality that grace abounds on their behalf and that peace has secured between them and God reconciliation, and that this peace should reign in their hearts. It's like Paul saying, I'm about to tell you a bunch of things that are going to make you think, oh boy, I'm not doing very good. So before I tell you all these things that are going to make you think, oh boy, I'm not doing very good, let me just remind you about grace and peace. Let me just remind you that everything I'm going to tell you, everything I'm about to tell you about how you need to be what God wants you to be, before I tell you that, let me just remind you, grace and peace. Peace was so important to Paul's writings. Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That because we have received the free gift of sal salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the same Jesus that died for our salvation and our redemption and was raised again for our justification, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The privilege of living in peace with God. That though God's wrath is indeed accumulating against a sinful and rebellious world, a wrath that will be poured out during the seven years of tribulation upon this earth, His wrath has been satisfied against all those who willingly humble themselves before the cross of Christ and can rightly and joyfully declare that they, that we, have peace with God. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, For He, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Jesus Christ forged for us through His very death and reconciled relationship not just with God, but with others. In this particular context, Paul is speaking about how there is no Jew or Gentile anymore because he has broken down the walls between Jew and Gentile. He has made peace with God as well as with others. He has made one new man, reconciling us unto God in Christ. But as those who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we don't just have peace with God. We also have the privilege of having the peace of God. That God's peace can rule in our hearts. Rule our interactions one with another. That as we are spiritually minded, 
rejecting the carnality of the flesh and embracing the power of the Holy Spirit to do in us what we cannot do ourselves. Romans 8, verse 6 tells us that when we're spiritually minded, it is a life, it is a mind of life and peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us that as we submit ourselves to Christ, we are removed from a state of confusion and are granted peace, not just with God, but among men as well. Peace with God. Peace one with another. The peace of God. You are familiar with many other passages on peace. Paul uses God's attribute of peace to remind these believers that though their perfection is not yet obtained, it has already been secured. May I say that again? Though our perfection is not yet obtained, it is already secured. That though they are not perfect as they might want to be, they are in fact in God's eyes and in Christ already perfect. Moving toward complete sanctification. Being readied for the reality of spiritual victory. We might think of this as, uh, in, in a carnal example, as um, say buying an airline ticket. Not too long ago, my family went to Colorado. By some miracle, we were able to fly instead of drive. Um, that normally wouldn't happen for a family of five on the budget we have, but by God's grace, it, uh, the Lord worked it out to where we could fly. We bought those tickets, and of course, knowing all of the potential variables of that, but after we bought the tickets, we were booked. As far as I was concerned, as far as my wife was concerned, we were as good as on that plane. We, we had purchased the tickets. They were ours. They were in our name. There was a seat reserved for us. We were as good as on that plane, even though it was several months out before we were going to get on the plane. And that is the idea. The idea is that in Christ, we have a place. When, we, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were given a place in the heavenlies. It is yours. It is booked. It is for sure, and nothing can stop it. This is why regularly in the Scriptures we are called those who are perfect. We are called those who are sanctified. Those who are justified. We are called the children of God. Our adoption is yet to happen. Our complete sanctification and justification is yet to happen. But it's so sure that we are indeed positionally already there. When God looks at us, He sees us as already there. And that is, in fact, the second part of this prayer of expectation. The prayer that the sanctification in our lives would continue until the day that it is indeed complete. We saw back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2, that God's will for us is sanctification. He says, this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. A daily moving forward with greater cleanliness of heart and mind on the journey to complete holiness in the Lord. Paul's prayer, in short, is that the church would patiently, peacefully, and continually grow in righteousness and faith through obedience 
until the job is complete. And the job will be complete. This is the idea of the Greek word holy there. It's translated in our text holy. It means complete to the end. It means absolutely. It means a process that has been done in its entirety. He's not preaching sinless perfection in this life in this verse, but Paul is preaching the process of growth and cleansing leading unto eventual sinless perfection before the throne of our Lord. And to further emphasize the wholeness of Paul's prayer, he frames it specifically within the context of three parts of a human being. We at Legacy Baptist Church believe man to be comprised of three distinct parts, much in the same way that God is made up of three distinct persons. The one true God is made up of three persons. One God, who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as we consider them, we recognize God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father. But they all are, in fact, one God. And we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. We can't fully comprehend it, but it is what the Bible teaches. And in much the same way, a man is made up of three parts. We can't necessarily separate those three parts as we think of who a man is or what a man is, but we recognize that they are there. The body, the soul, and the spirit are the three parts of a man. The body is the physical part of a man. It's the vessel by which we operate, the vessel through which we function. The soul is the immaterial part of man, his will, his personality, his character, that which makes up the real person, we might say. And then the spirit. The spirit is the God-aware part of a man, the center of his conscience, his morality, his compulsion to worship, that which draws us to God, that which leads us to the need to have a God. That is the spirit that is within a man. Now, the spirit of a man dictates his desires and the perceptions of the will. So the spirit has within it my morality, my conscience, my worldview, and that is what dictates my will and my perception. The desires and perceptions of my will dictate my actions. So a spirit that is dead is uh, therefore sold in sin. Sin influences through the, the, the spirit which is dead and, and thus sold in sin. That's what dead means. It doesn't mean it's not functioning. It means it's sold under sin. It's headed toward death. That spirit, sold in sin, influences the will to desire that sin. And then that will influences the body to perform those sins. Likewise, a spirit which is alive in Christ is free or can be free from sin's influence and thus can influence the will and the perception to do that which is right. And then the will influences the body to do that which is right. This by extension is why simple outward changes don't work in our lives. 
You can't change yourself from the outside in. You have to change yourself from the inside out. And that's not even yourself, right? That's God. But changes don't happen from the outside in. It's not the way it works. If we change the outside without changing the underlying spiritual problems in our heart, then we have truly changed nothing. We are only managing the symptoms of the problem. If I have a fever and I never do anything other than treat the symptoms of a fever, I'm not dealing with what's causing the fever. I'm just dealing with that which is manifest on the outside. If the ability to stop sinning is rooted in humbling ourselves before the Almighty God so that He can do in us what we cannot do ourselves, it is as we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God that He changes our desires. He alters our will, which in turn naturally alters our actions to conform to His will. And that is when it's done right. That's an inside-out change. In much the same way, when we as believers do not submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, the flesh maintains control, which directs our will towards sin, which dictates our actions and what we do is wrong. And so Paul's prayer was directed, as he says here, that they would be sanctified wholly. That God uh, would sanctify their whole spirit and soul and body. That every aspect of their being, every fiber of who they are, would be undergoing this process of personal sanctification so that not just their body, but their body, their soul, and their spirit would be cleansed by the Spirit of God and made to want to love and to do that which is right. And he prays that this would be the case until the day that the Lord takes them home. Now in verse 24, we find that these statements were not simple statements of possibility or desire, but statements of expectation and anticipation. He says, faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. The statement is plainly this. If you are the called of God, if you have entered into the family of God and thus are numbered among those who are the called in Christ, if you can confidently say with all your heart that you are a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, then sanctification and blamelessness are not just desires. They are realities. Your future is one of sinless perfection. Not in this life, but without question in the life to come. And why? Because the one who has called you out of your sin is faithful. Because the one who asks you to yield the material promises of this life for the unseen promises of the life to come will make your sacrifice worth it. Because we fully believe the same promises that God states through Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, 
but the things which are not seen are eternal. We sacrifice the riches and the pleasures of this world in expectation of that which God has promised us in the life to come. We suffer scorn and ridicule and persecution of the righteous in this world in expectation that the sufferings that we face for doing right in this life cannot possibly be compared with the glory that we will receive before the throne of God for doing right in the next. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, Paul describes the legacy of the faithful when he says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And he continues in verse 16 saying, But now they desire a better country, That is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. We're not ashamed to call God our God because we know that He is faithful who has called us. That He will give us the promises that He's made to us. And so we're not afraid to yield the temporary pleasures of this life and of this body of sin because we know that faithful is He who called us who will reward us for our focus on that which is heavenly for our obedience to the Lord. We are persuaded that there is a God and that He has told us the truth of how we can know Him and the truth of how we can please Him and the truth that one day we will finally be given bodies of sinless perfection, hearts fully inclined toward Him and a life that has no end. We are persuaded that God is faithful. And as we are persuaded that God is faithful, we are nothing more than a long line of men and women throughout the ages that have been persuaded of the very same thing, that He is faithful. And so they confessed that on this earth, they're strangers. On this earth, they're pilgrims. That in this earth, we're, we're not here to stay. This is not our home. This is just a stop on the journey. That we are heavenly citizens. That we're on our way to a heavenly home. And as heavenly citizens on our way to a heavenly home, we're going to live by heaven's rules, not by this earth's rules. And that was the persuasion of the men and the women of years gone by who have lived persuaded that if they will just serve and love God in this life, then it will secure for them in greater fashion the promises of the life to come. And as Paul closes out this epistle, he says in verses 25-28, through he gives some final requests, some final salutations. And the first one in verse 25, Brethren, pray for us. I was very tempted to break this off into another message, but I decided not to. I hate to make it just a passing thought. It's not really in line with what we're thinking about this evening and the purpose of our message this evening. Uh, they're kind of clean-up verses at the end, but this is still a very vital thought. It cannot be understated that Paul is asking the church to pray for him and for his companions in the ministry. Ministers need prayer. Ministers need prayer. And if I may get personal for just a minute, I need your prayers. 
The pressures and temptations upon a minister are great. I need the prayers of those unto whom I minister because prayer is our source of spiritual power. Prayer is the means by which we petition God. Prayer is the means by which we find power with God. And as Paul gives this little four-word verse here, brethren, pray for us. God forbid that we should minimize the fact that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was asking this church, the church of the Thessalonians, to remember him in prayer. To remember him and his companions. To remember their needs. To remember what they're trying to do for God. And to uphold them in prayer. In verse 26, he calls upon them to greet one another with a holy kiss. In many regions of the world, a kiss is a common greeting among those who are close one to another. Uh, my mom was born in France, and uh, she was there until she was five, and, and then moved to the United States, and <clears throat> her mother is French, and um, we visited France when I was in my teens. And one of the things that we had to get used to in practice was that our distant relatives across the pond were going to greet us with a kiss because that's what the French do. And ironically, uh, as we had practiced and done our thing, we did um, you know, kiss, 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 kiss too. And we found out about halfway through that our cousins were all confused. Why did they kiss us twice? And, and so you know, we, we, I guess we, we added one too many kisses to the, to the greeting. But we didn't know we're not French and Americans certainly don't do that. I tried to do that here. I'd probably get slugged. Uh, but, but this is not an uncommon thing in many regions of the world. It's not a suggestion of carnality. It's not a suggestion of indecency. It's a simple request to pass along Paul's love and greetings to their brethren. You that are reading this, Pass along my love. Paul sends his love. <laughs> That's really what this is. Paul sends his love. Uh, I'll get in, in the cards that I, I got a birthday card this past week from my family. And there can't be anything truly focused on me anymore because I have kids, right? So my parents send me a card and they say what? Hug and kiss the kids for me. Right? Hug and kiss the kids. Pass my love along to the kids. I talk to my mom on the phone. Mom, happy birthday. Today's my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Give the kids hugs and kisses for me. That's, that's what's on their mind. Um, pass along my love. And that's Paul. That's what Paul's saying here. Pass along my love. In verse 27, he charges them to read the epistle to all believers, stating that this epistle, like all inspired scriptures, is meant for all believers, not just for those unto whom the, direct, the epistle was directly addressed. And then finally, in verse 28, he gives his signature sign-off, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. <clears throat> so ends the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonian believers. I hope that the summary of these last few verses didn't distract us too much from the point of the message today. So let's refocus on our point as we apply this message. In a manner of speaking, just like this morning, the whole message was an application. We've learned that God is perfecting us. We're not sinlessly perfect, but He is perfecting us. He is 
sanctifying us. We've learned that it is the reality of the peace of God secured between us and God through Christ that brings us to a place of personal peace and willing persistence in this war with the world and the flesh and the devil. But as we close, I'd like to bring this exhortation closer to home. Make it all the more urgent. And by God's grace, make it all the more comforting to you this evening as each of us endeavors to please God in this life. And it's my prayer, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, that this would not work itself out in your heart as comfort with your sin. Sometimes a person can take a message like this where your pastor's trying to emphasize the other end of the coin, the other side of the coin, which is uh, the grace and the peace and the love and, and the reality that you won't be sinlessly perfect in this life and all of these things. And when, when a person preaches these, it kind of makes you feel like, oh, okay, I'm actually not doing too bad here when I'm persisting in these sins. And I don't want that. But by the same token, I do you the very deepest of harm if I do not remind you that if you are a believer, your eternal destiny is secured in spite of your sin in this life. And I need to remind you that as a believer, you dare not live your life in constant guilt over your lack of sinless perfection. God does not want us to be living a life of guilt because we're not perfect. This is why He's the God of peace that sanctifies us wholly. Because the God of peace wants us to be at peace. He doesn't want us constantly racking, raking ourselves over the coals at our own shortcomings. Your life as a believer is intended to be dominated by grace and peace, not by fear and guilt. Your days should be happy and peaceful, not sad and frustrated. The reality of your sinfulness in this life should not strip you from the joy that you have been fully released and you will eventually be completely freed from these sins which so easily beset us. I want you to be encouraged. And I want to encourage you to keep on trying to do right, not motivated by fear and guilt, not motivated because of what others may think of you, not motivated by pastor and his messages. I want you to, to, to be motivated by a true and abiding love for the one who has redeemed you from all iniquity and sanctified unto himself a peculiar people that ought to be zealous of good works. Love the one that has redeemed you from your sin and serve him because you love him. And he's also the one that will one day come and complete the victory that he's begun in your life. I want you to take heart this evening and remember that even though the battles are being forged and some of them will be lost and some of them will be won, the war is already won. I want you to remember this evening that when God looks at you, He sees a person who is already sinlessly perfect in Christ, not because you are sinlessly perfect in Christ, but because Christ was sinlessly perfect and one day in Him you will be as well. Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, 
according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Paul teaches us in this verse that those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior are the chosen. The chosen unto what? Well, those who have accepted Christ as their Savior from eternity past have been chosen. They have not been chosen, but they have been chosen unto holiness and blamelessness. In other words, God has ordained from eternity past that all who will accept Christ, that all who will follow in His path, that all who will accept the revealed Word of God from the, from the Scriptures or from the mouth of God for that matter will be one day blameless and holy before Him in love. If you're a believer, you are predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. It will happen. It's only a matter of time. In the sister passage to Ephesians, In Colossians chapter 1, similar in many ways with a different emphasis, Paul writes this in verses 21 and 22 of Colossians 1. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The reason that Jesus Christ died on the cross is so that any man who accepts his grace by faith would be made holy and unblameable and unreprovable. Not simply made better. Okay? Not simply have a chance to be holy. It's not like those sweepstakes where if you, if you, um, you can get one vote and then if you buy something, you can get 10 votes and then if you buy something more, you can get, you can get uh, 100 votes and, and you're hoping to win. And, and so it's not like that where if you accept Christ as your Savior, then, then you get 1,000 a, a, a votes and the chance to be holy instead of just 10. No, you will be holy. You're not simply given the tools to make yourself holy. You are promised that you will be made holy. The day you accepted Christ as your Savior, positionally speaking, in Christ, you were made blameless before God. And you were guaranteed a place among the blameless in heaven in Christ. Isn't that good news? And so in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, as Paul is likening Jesus Christ and his love for the love that a husband ought to have to his wife, he explains it this way. He says that he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is the church. The church will be presented one day to Christ. Christ is making you this. And He will present you then to Himself this, holy, unblameable, without spot, without wrinkle, or anything of the like. And so Paul confidently declares in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the exact same thing that Paul just wished the Thessalonians? That their whole spirit and soul and body would be preserved blameless unto when? 
the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calleth you who also will do it. Who also will make you glorious. Will make you without spot. Will make you without wrinkle. Will make you without blemish. You are being perfected. And one day, one glorious day, you will be perfect. And today, today the God of peace looks down on you and sees you in Christ. And so He sees you holy and unblameable before Him. Today, God looks at you and sees that that very Son that died on the cross. Today, you are reconciled and are accepted by a thrice holy God. Today, you do not need to live in guilt over your shortcomings. Today, you do not need to live in condemnation over the reality that you still have a sin nature. As Paul exhorts us in Romans 6.1, let me remind you, he says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying here. But... On the contrary, we dare not minimize the grace of God or fear this grace because it can be abused. We dare not allow the possibility of failure to override our understanding of our own redemption and the peace that it should give us in our hearts. We, <coughs> excuse me, we dare not allow the reality of an ever-present sin nature the reality that you still willfully sin against God on a regular basis, we dare not allow that reality to bring our hearts to a place where we allow them to oppress us under baseless condemnation. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. John said in 1 John 3, verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Feeling convicted is a good thing. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8 tells us that if we are not convicted and chastised for our sin, if we don't receive chastisement by God when we are living in unconfessed sin, then we are not one of His children. It just plainly says that. If you're not under chastisement for sin, when you sin, you're outside of Christ. But feeling the guilt of condemnation for our sin that we are confessing and forsaking just because we're still sinners, feeling guilt because our sin nature still is in us, feeling guilt because we struggle with the sins of this life, feeling guilt because we're not sinlessly perfect, this is a ploy of the devil. 
It's a ploy of the devil to distract us and to make us unusable to God. See, because here's the problem. If I am living under the guilt and the condemnation of sins that have been forgiven in Christ, of sins that I don't want in my life, of sins that I'm confessing and forsaking, of sins that I'm yielding, then I am living in a place where I have convinced myself that God is not pleased with me and I can't be used of Him. If I am living under the guilt and the condemnation of sins of years gone by, then I am living in a place where... I have no place being. I am living in a place where I myself am holding myself down from the ability that God has to use me because I am limiting myself with my own perceived downfalls that Christ has already paid for tenfold on the cross. If it's done, if it's over, if it's forgiven, it's done, it's over. It's forgiven. If it hasn't been forgiven, it means you haven't confessed it yet. If you haven't confessed it, you need to do it. And then forsake it. And then move on. So rest. And that's the point this evening. Rest. Rest in knowing that the very God of peace is wholly sanctifying you. That He is a God of the impossible. Pastor, it's impossible that a God like that, that a God of such mercy and love could possibly love me. It's impossible that a holy God could possibly accept me. You're right, it is. But Jesus Christ said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And not only is it possible, but... You and I each know this evening, if, uh, at least those of us that are here under the sound of my voice this evening, we know that it's happened. It's happened in Christ. We have been accepted. Rest in the blessed assurance that your whole spirit, soul, and body are being preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord. Rest in the knowledge that the God who has promised these things is faithful also to perform them. And so be at peace, granted by the very God at peace. And then go in love and appreciation and sin no more. Let's close in prayer.